Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, I am glad to be with you. We don't have time for pleasantries, so hi. All right, we gotta go. We have to cover Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by the time we're done, I'll be at the two-thirds mark for tonight's message. So I'm going to talk fast. It'll help if you'll listen fast, okay? So let's get those fingers stretched out because we're going to be taking a tour. I've entitled this series that I'm going to do with you in five weeks. I've entitled this Journey with Jesus, a survey, an overview of the life of Christ. If you thought of this as a helicopter tour of the life of Christ where we set down in a couple of key spots and pick up some souvenirs along the way, that would be a good way to think about this. On everything that we could say, we could go in much greater depth. But I think that there is a value in taking an overview like this where we can see the big picture and understand how it all goes together. And here are the two things that if you don't get to come to all of the sessions, if you can't make all five of the times I'll be with you, here are the two things that I hope you'll be impressed with. And if you forget everything else, here are the two things I hope that you retain out of this five-part series. First of all, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ succeeded in the mission that God the Father gave him because he surrendered his will to the will of the Father and he depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that to you one more time. Jesus succeeded in his mission, the mission that the Father had given him, by surrendering his will to the will of the Father and by depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the second thing I would like you to understand is that Jesus was not the passive victim of circumstances. He doesn't find himself on the cross because he was just sort of overwhelmed and taken up in the political machinations of the day. But rather, by the time we're done, I want you to see very clearly that Jesus Christ was a willing and a willing sacrifice for our sins. That he deliberately took the journey that would lead him to the cross. Those are the two important lessons that I want us to see as we go through the life of Christ. We're going to do that in five sessions. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to try to cover the source material. We want to talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their themes, their purposes, and how they come together. And I want to talk to you about why we should trust the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as reliable eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. Next week, I'm going to be the Grinch who stole Christmas, okay? We're going to talk about the real story of Christmas. We'll look at the evidence that we have in the Gospels, and we'll try to get a biblical portrait of what happened at Christmas and the early childhood, and we'll lay in some important lessons about Jesus's life. And then we're going to take a look in our third session at a busy day in the life of Christ. We're going to take a look at a day in Jesus's ministry, his public ministry, and we'll be trying to capture in that session, the heart of Jesus's public ministry, what he was teaching and preaching about himself, what he was demonstrating about himself. In our fourth session, we'll be talking about the training of the 12, a special time in Jesus's life when he is working to train his disciples for the time that he'll be gone. I've entitled that Adventures in Missing the Point, the Life and Times of the Disciples, okay? And then in the fifth session, the end game. The road to the cross, our Savior's deliberate, purposeful, and sacrificial journey to the cross. And we're going to see how masterful Jesus was 
at making sure all the pieces were exactly where they would need to be so that he could fulfill the mission that God had for him. I want you to take a look at these pictures. I recently read Ron Chernow's biography of George Washington. And if you take a look at these four portraits, you'll note that all four of these are portraits of George Washington. Each one of them is done at a different time in George Washington's life. And each one of them captures a unique and special aspect of his life. In the first portrait, George Washington is a young man, an officer actually in the British Army. In the second, he's a land surveyor. In the third, he is General George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army. And in the fourth, he's the President of the United States. Each of these portraits accurately captures George Washington at that time. And yet they're all different. They're all accurate. They're all different. And they all capture a different aspect of George Washington's life. I think this is a good illustration for us to have of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all different. They don't contradict each other, but they all present a different aspect of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. And it's valuable for us, again, this is a survey, it's valuable for us to understand the portrait of Jesus that each of these Gospels gives us. And so we're going to try to do that this evening. We're going to start with the Gospel of Matthew. As Pastor Ken said, the Old Testament anticipated the life of Jesus. It was appropriate that this morning we were in First Chronicles. If you go back to the Old Testament, we have the book of First and Second Kings that tells the stories of the northern and southern uh, monarchy. And First and Second Kings is really a book that tells us why Israel was taken into captivity. But then later on in the Jewish canon, you get the book of Chronicles. Now, in our Bibles, I know that the book of Chronicles comes midway through our Old Testament. But if you were, had a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the book of Chronicles is actually the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's because the book of Chronicles is telling us why God is still working with Israel. The book of Chronicles was written to tell us why God brought Israel out of captivity. And the theme of the book of Chronicles is this. God made a promise to David and God has never forgotten the promise that he made to David. God will from the seed of David bring a king. The lamp of David will not burn out. That is the theme of the book of Chronicles. And it's really cool. And you should do this sometime. You should read the Old Testament in the Jewish canonical order end with the book of Chronicles. Because our Old Testament ends with that message. God has not forgotten the promise that he made to David that he would of the seed of David make a forever king and kingdom. And the curtain comes down on the Old Testament. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1, the curtain comes up on the New Testament. The promise, God will not forget David. God will keep his promise and bring a king. And then the curtain comes up on the New Testament and it says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The lamp of David will not go out. And when Matthew opens up, the lamp of David is still burning. The, the, the lamp is still flickering. And it's in the hearts of two faithful people, 
a man of courage and righteousness, Joseph, and his virgin bride who is pregnant with the king. In fact, that's the message of Matthew. The message of Matthew, I'm going to put it up here because it's fairly long, and some of you have to write down every word that's on a PowerPoint. So I'm going to keep it up there, and if you can talk and listen at the same time, that'll be great. But in the book of Matthew, Jesus is the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the Jewish king. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth. His kingdom, however, is not just, not merely physical and political in nature, but rather has a spiritual component. And this is what happens in the book of Matthew. Jesus shows up. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth. But there are all kinds of ideas going on in Israel about the kingdom of God. And so what we have going on in in, in the book of Matthew is we really have a clash of kingdoms. You have the kingdom of God ruled over by Jesus and that operates with a spiritually transformed heart. And then you have the kingdom of the spiritual leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, a kingdom that they were in charge of. The Pharisees at the time of Christ would often greet each other with this title, hello fellow gatekeeper. They thought they were the gatekeepers of the kingdom. And it was a kingdom that operated on these external rules, these external laws that they had concocted and invented. And so we see the story of this clash of kingdoms. I want you to turn to chapter 9 of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, we just have a little episode that I think demonstrates this clash of kingdoms. In Matthew chapter 9, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, here I think it's the Pharisees, are upset with Jesus because he dares to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees are wagging their tongues and they say to the disciples, right there, if you're looking with me in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love what Jesus says here to these people who made copies of the Bible for a living. He says, you need to go and read where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, which was to live out the heart of God. And the only way you can live out a heart of God is to have your heart transformed by God. One of the key features of the book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in any of the Gospels. It goes Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And in that sermon, Jesus makes these statements with the Pharisees standing right there. He says to the crowd, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of these Pharisees, you cannot have a part in the kingdom of God. That must have been a daunting message for the crowd that was gathered there that day. To have more righteousness than the Pharisees? These are people who tithed out of the spice rack. Every tenth mustard seed. Every tenth sprig of dill. How can I be more righteous 
than these guys. And Jesus says this, essentially, I'm summarizing, read it for yourself. He says this, an ounce of genuine righteousness on the inside is worth a ton of righteousness that's merely on the outside. And this clash of kingdoms just develops throughout the entire book of Matthew until we get to Matthew chapter 22. I want you to see this. This is the last day, excuse me, 23. This is the last day that Jesus is in front of the multitude before he is going to be crucified. And Jesus has this last, for lack of a better term, throwdown with the Pharisees. He's on the Temple Mount in front of all of the crowd that's gathered there for the feast. And people are going to have to make a decision. Are you going to be with Jesus or are you going to be with the Pharisees? Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat, but you miss the camel doing a backstroke. Right? They miss the point. And the point of the kingdom of God, turns out, is God. (laughs) Knowing him, having your heart transformed. Jesus offers this kingdom to Israel, but Israel is unwilling, ultimately, to embrace Jesus' spiritual message. But always remember this about Jesus, where Jesus' message finds a hard heart, the message of Jesus doesn't stop. Like water rushing down one of our dry riverbeds. The water flows to the hungry heart. And this book ends with this, right? Take my message, Jesus says to his disciples, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Go and teach all men. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sent to all of the world. The message of Jesus the King. And he is coming back to rule. This is the portrait of Matthew. Jesus Christ as the rightful heir to the throne. And he is coming back again to rule and to reign and to establish that kingdom. And he will establish that kingdom with a people whose hearts have been transformed. Mark. You're not allowed to have favorites. I have four children, but on any given day, one of them might be my favorite. It just depends on what's going on, right? You're not allowed to have favorite gospels, okay? I know all of the Bible is the Bible, but if I did have a favorite, if I were allowed to have a favorite, it would be the gospel of Mark. Mark is amazing because Mark's gospel is probably the sermon that Peter preached about the life of Christ. We have actually historical record of John Mark who actually writes it down, kind of bugging Peter. Hey, Peter, you really need to write this down. And Peter never has time to write it down. So Mark actually writes it down and he's a little nervous because he kind of did it without permission. He wrote it down 
and he shows it to, to Peter and he's a little nervous, but Peter accepts it. And so this was probably the message that Peter preached as he traveled. Can you imagine Peter showing up somewhere? I mean, if Peter showed up here tonight, what would you want to hear from him? What it was like with Jesus. And so I think that this is a sermon. That's why it's shorter than all of the rest. It's just 16 chapters long. It hits really quickly. You get straight into the action. There's lots of reasons to believe that this was originally a sermon. Lots of reasons to believe that it was Peter's sermon. And so the Gospel of Mark is probably a disciple's tale. One of the things that's striking about the Gospel of Mark when you compare it to the Gospel of Luke particularly is that the Gospel of Mark has a lot more negative stories about the disciples than, for instance, Luke does. You see, for Luke, the disciples were heroes. For Luke, the disciples were the people that had taught him the gospel. For Luke, the disciples were people he was seeing martyred for their faith. But Peter is kind of telling on himself, And telling on the other disciples. It's as though Peter says, hey guys, I know that you think that we knew it, that we got it, that we understood it, but let me tell you what it was really like. It's a disciple's tale. It's powerful. It's quick hitting. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus powerfully demonstrates himself to be the son of God. This is how Mark's gospel starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Right here in the opening chapter, in verse 11, you have God speaking out of heaven, and he says, this is my beloved Son. So Jesus is presented as the powerful Son of God, and he works in this world with power and authority. He has authority over sin. He has authority over Satan and his demons. He does wonderful miracles. And yet when you get to the halfway point of the gospel of Mark, there's a surprise. Jesus has left no doubt to who he is, but the surprise is this. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, we see this turning of the theme of the gospel of Mark. Jesus has been declaring and then demonstrating himself to be the son of God. But then in Mark chapter 8, He begins in verse 31, it says this, and he began to teach them, that is his disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus teaches his disciples that he's going to go to the cross. This is a surprise. This isn't what they expected. It wasn't what the crowd expected. It's not what they wanted. It's not what the crowd wanted. They wanted Jesus to come in power and victory and to defeat the Roman overlords. And yet the surprise is that Jesus Christ, this powerful son of God, is going to suffer and die. The theme verse, the core verse of the Gospel of Mark. This, if there was one place to, to capture the portrait of Jesus that the Gospel of Mark gives us, it's in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Powerful words. This is the portrait of Christ that we get in the book of Mark. For even the Son of Man, this person that has done all of these amazing miracles that fill the opening chapters of Mark. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a great surprise, he comes to serve and to suffer for the sake of this world. And he leaves his disciples a clear path to follow. 
a life of service and sacrifice for the sake of his name. This is what they didn't get. This is the lesson they had to learn. This is what Peter is preaching as he goes out. He says, guys, we didn't understand it. We didn't get it. Jesus himself was right here in front of us. And we did not expect that he would go to the cross. But in going to the cross and making this sacrifice for our sins, he set the pattern for us to follow. A life of service and sacrifice for the sake of his name. That is the gospel of Mark. Luke. Luke is amazing. I want you to just see the prologue of the gospel of Luke. Let me just read these opening four verses. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered unto us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." Luke says, I am in the perfect position to set about to write an orderly, accurate, eyewitness account of the things that Jesus said and did. Now, Luke was not himself an eyewitness, but he was around the eyewitnesses. He had the perfect opportunity to talk to the eyewitnesses and to organize this material. And Luke is going to write two books in our New Testament. He's going to write Luke, and he's going to write Acts. In fact, Luke writes as much of the New Testament as the Apostle Paul in volume. And sometime you really need to take me up on this, okay? Sometime you need to read Luke and Acts back to back. Because Luke was writing the gospel of Luke with the intention of writing the book of Acts. He wrote them together, two parts of the same volume, And there's all kinds of strands that run through the entire Luke-Acts composition. For instance, it is in the Gospel of Luke that we see the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ brought to the fore. We're told that it was in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus did the things that he did. Well, why would Luke emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus? Well, he's going to write the book of Acts, and he's going to emphasize the power of the Spirit in the disciples. In other words, it was the Spirit that empowered Jesus to do what he did, and it was the Spirit that empowered the disciples to take the message of Jesus forward into this world. So there's all kinds, and we don't have the time to link all of this together tonight, but there are all kinds of themes and trajectories, even words that repeat across both Luke and Acts. Okay, so sometime what you need to do is maybe start with John. Okay, read John first, then read Matthew and Mark, and then read Luke and Acts back to back and just see it. You'll see it for yourself, how these two books ought to be read and studied together. And so Luke is in a position to tell us both of these stories. He was around people who were eyewitnesses. And of course, in the book of Acts, he's traveling. He's experiencing many of these things firsthand. And so he tells these stories. One of the things that's fascinating about Luke is, I believe actually that Luke at some point traveled back to Israel. Maybe it was during Paul's imprisonment. All of a sudden, he's got some free time. And so he travels back to Israel and he interviews people. I think, for instance, that Luke had firsthand information from Mary. If you compare 
the nativity narrative in Matthew and the nativity narrative in Luke, they're very different. The one in Matthew is from Joseph's perspective. The one in Luke is from Mary's perspective. And we have twice in that childhood narrative, we have Mary saying this, or it's recorded for us in Luke, that Mary pondered these things in her hearts. The, The nativity narrative in Luke is really a mother's tale. Little details that dads don't notice or remember, right? But Mary remembered these things. It's the only information we get about a child, the childhood of Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke. There are 15 parables included in the Gospel of Luke that are not in any of the other Gospels. And so Luke was getting firsthand eyewitness accounts. And because he's also writing the book of Acts, and because he knows where the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go, because he's experiencing that and living that, he makes sure we understood that we understand that from the very beginning, it was always God's plan to take the message of Jesus to the hungry hearts. Luke emphasizes the down and outers, the unlikely converts. He tells the stories of the Gentiles and the women and the impoverished and how they all come to Christ because that's what he was seeing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For instance, in Luke 4, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. Early on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue and he says to his hometown people in Nazareth, a prophet is never received in his hometown. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, in the days of Elijah, was there a widow shortage in Israel? Is that why God sent Elijah up to the widow of Zarephath? They were just, after three and a half years of no rain, there were just no widows in Israel. No, there was no faith in Israel. And so the prophet is taken to Zarephath outside of Israel. During the days of Elisha, was there a widow shortage in, or a, a leper shortage In the days of Elisha, is that why God had to import Naaman, a non-Jew? No, there was no faith in Israel. And this is also true in the days of Jesus. There was no faith in Israel, and so the gospel is going to go to those who need to hear it. Jesus is the second Adam. When you compare the genealogy of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't start with Abraham. Matthew starts with Abraham. But Luke starts his genealogy all the way back with Adam. Jesus is the second Adam who comes into this world to reverse the curse and crush the serpent's head. He comes to seek and to save those who are lost. And he provides salvation for all who believe, not just Israel. The portrait that we have of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the Savior of this world and the only Savior for this world. And then John. Jesus is the divine son of God who perfectly reveals the father. He is the obedient son. All throughout the book of John, the son says, I do nothing of myself. I speak nothing of myself. The only thing I do and the only thing I speak are the things that the father tells me to say and to do. He's the obedient son who provides eternal life for all who have faith in him. John chapter 1 cannot be missed. It's familiar, but it shouldn't just be left unsaid. Let's read these words. Who is Jesus? In the gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was uh, with God, and the Word was 
God. It is plain. Now, you can make the case for Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus is God. It's not hiding there. But John brings it right out to the front, right at the beginning. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is God. And when you see him, you are seeing the Father. I love what it says here in verse 14. That word who is God, the eternal God, Jesus Christ, here is certainly one of the most stunning statements at all of the Bible. That eternal word, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. My friends, this is what separates biblical Christianity from every other false form of religion. In every other false form of religion, you make your way to God. But in biblical Christianity, in the person of Jesus Christ, God makes his way to us. And this is what's portrayed for us. And there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus Christ says here in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In all four of these Gospels, we could stay and do an entire multi-year series out of all four of these Gospels. But I just want us to grab those portraits. For Matthew, Jesus Christ is the King. He's coming back to establish that kingdom. In Mark, Jesus Christ is the suffering Son of Man who goes to the cross to provide redemption for us. And we need to follow his path of sacrifice for the, name of his, for the sake of his name. In Luke, he is the savior of the world for anyone. Doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, male or female, rich or poor, Jesus is your savior. And in John, he is the son of God, the divine son of God. To see him is to see the father. These four rich portraits of who Jesus is are brought to us through these four gospels. Now, I wanna put that up at the front Because as we go forward in this, we're going to be bringing material from the different Gospels, kind of compiling it together. But as we do that, we must never miss the message of who Jesus is as it comes to us in the four canonical Gospels. But this leads me to my next question. Is there good reason to believe that these four canonical Gospels are reliable? Are the Gospels reliable? Here's what the liberal says. The liberal theologian, the liberal interpreter of Scripture, here's the standard liberal approach about the Gospels. They say that the Gospels were first written in the second century. They were written over a hundred years after the events that they report. That would mean that they were not written by eyewitnesses. They weren't written by the actual apostles. They were written later on, a hundred years or so after the life of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. And they were written outside of Israel by people who had never been there. And therefore, they are not reliable accounts. For the liberal, they discount the possibility of the supernatural. So every time you read something supernatural going on in one of the gospel accounts, they have to have another explanation for it than that it actually happened. And so these are Things written 100 years later, written by people who had never been to Israel, people who had basically created and then written these myths about this person, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, I want you to help me out for a moment. I want you to imagine that you have decided to write a novel. All of us have a novel in us somewhere, right? Someday you're going to write a novel, okay? And so, uh, Dr. Shoemate, you've decided to write a novel, and you're writing about something that happened 100 years ago, so you're going to write a novel uh, that's written in, in 1923, 1823, no, 1923, sorry, math is hard. I originally had 1823. 1923. And you're going to write about a place you've never been. Okay. Have you ever been to, to southeastern France? No. no. Okay. So Dr. Shoemate is going to write a novel. That's why I couldn't pick Pastor Dave because he's been to southeastern France. Yeah. So let's imagine. Okay. Dr. Shoemate's going to write a novel set in 1923 in southeastern France. A place he's never been. Oh, and by the way, you don't get Google internet anything to write your historical novel. You don't get any resources. You just have to write it off the top of your head. Now, Dr. Shoemate's novel comes out and there's like three guys named Pierre. (laughs) You know, you're using all Felipe, you know. You're using all of the French sounding names that you have. Do you know any cities in southeastern France off the top of your head? No, okay. So he's making up place names because he's never been there. He doesn't have access to maps. He doesn't have access to any resources. Okay, we're not trying to pick on Dr. Shoemate, right? But we're picking on him a little bit. Okay, what are the chances that Dr. Shoemate's historical novel is going to correlate with actual things that happened in southeastern France in 1923? Highly unlikely. If the liberal account for the writing of the Gospels is true, it would be highly unlikely that there would be any correlation between what we actually read in the Gospels and what we know historically about the first century in Israel. So let's put some of these things to the test. In our example here, our thought experiment, it's highly unlikely that Dr. Shumate would get the names that were actually common in 1923 in southeastern France right. But we happen to know what the most popular names were in the first century in Palestine, in Israel. Do you know how we know that? They have discovered bone boxes in the first century in Israel. Someone would be buried. They would lay them out on a table. Their body would decompose. A year later, they would come, collect the the bones that were left on that table, put them in a bone box, put that bone box up on a shelf, and they would write the name of the person on the bone box. They're called ossuaries. We have discovered literally thousands of these ossuaries. This is the practice of burial back at that time, so we can date it to when it happened, so we know what the common names were. It's like finding a death certificate databank. So we know what the common names were at the time of Christ. From this databank, we have about a, data, a databank of about 3,000 names. So we know what the most common names were. Here are the top three names in the first century. Simon, Joseph, and Mary. Are there any Simons in the gospel stories? Any Josephs? Any Marys? Yes. In fact, here are the top three names in the gospel acts. Just those five books. Here are the top three names. Simon, there's eight Simons. There are six Josephs, and there are six Marys. Now, that's amazing, right? If the people that wrote the Gospels had never been to Palestine, didn't have access to a database like we have, how would they know, 
how to make it exactly the right names at the right time in the right place. It's virtually impossible. There's this feature on the names that are in the New Testament. It's called disambiguation, all right? What is disambiguation? I'll give you an example. If you go to your wife and you say, hey, hon, I have booked a romantic getaway for us in Paris. If you mean Paris, Texas, you need to let her know that, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Adding the word Texas after Paris makes it unambiguous what you mean. And that would be important before you pull up to the Airbnb, okay? (laughs) Disambiguation clarifies. So let me give you an example of disambiguation. There's Simons are everywhere. In fact, at the time of Christ, one in 12 boys was named Simon. One in six girls was named Mary, by the way. That's why when a Simon is mentioned, especially when he's first introduced in a scene, you have to have something that follows it or else you don't know which Simon you're talking about. It's kind of like being the president of IBCS. You have to say Elizabeth, Alaska, Elizabeth, Colorado. We have Elizabeths everywhere. Elizabeth, who should not be trusted when she tells stories of Pastor Nathan. That's this one right over here. Okay. You have to make it unambiguous who you're talking about. So you have Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Simon the Leper, Simon the Tanner, Simon of Cyrene, Simon of Magus, Simon Magus, Simon, Simon Niger. And two of these Simons are in the same, they're apostles, right? You have multiple people with the same name in the same list of apostles. So this is disambiguation. If Dr. Shoemate's novel about southeastern France comes out, set in 1923, not only did he get the names right, but he also got which names were common enough that he needed to use disambiguation. What are the chances that he would do that? Be very, very low. Let me show you an example. Here's the list of the 12 apostles. Follow along. In red, I've put the disambiguation. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these, Simon, and then we have disambiguation, right? Who is called Peter. Well, that's because that's the number one ranked name. And Andrew, his brother. Now, Andrew is not a common name. We do have disambiguation here, but that might just be trying to link Andrew, this particular Andrew, to Peter. So that one might not be functioning like disambiguation. But then we get James, and then we have disambiguation. James, the son of Zebedee. Well, why is this name disambiguated? Because it's the 11th most popular name. And then you have John, his brother. John was number five. Now, notice Philip. Philip does not have disambiguation after it. That's because it was the 61st most common name. Bartholomew is ranked 50, no disambiguation. Thomas doesn't make the list, okay? Thomas is here, but we don't know how common Thomas's name was, but no disambiguation. Matthew, the tax collector. Well, why do we have disambiguation with Matthew? It was the ninth most common name. James, the son of Alphaeus. We get our second James in the same list. It's a common name, 11th most common. Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Okay, now Thaddeus is 39th, so not common, but Thaddeus might have wanted to be known as Thaddeus to avoid being known as Judas, because that was probably his name. Then we have Simon the Canaanite, the second Simon in the same list, disambiguated because it's the most uh, popular name in Israel at the time. And Judas, with the disambiguation of Iscariot, because Judas was the fourth most popular name at the time. Does that make sense? Are you tracking what I'm saying? Not only is it highly unlikely you would get the names that were actually used in that region at that time in the right 
frequency, but that you would know which names needed to have this additional feature of disambiguation added to it. The only way you can do that is if the names are being recorded by people that were actually there, recording events that actually happened. So the names are powerful. But I want to talk to you about a plant, one plant, real quick. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Now, remember, according to the liberal, the Gospels were written by people who have never been to Israel, written 100 years after the events. I want to show you the distribution map of the plant, the sycamore tree, really common in Africa. And then there's this little nugget of sycamores that occur in Israel But there are no sycamore trees in the places where the liberals say the gospel writers were when they wrote these stories. In other words, what's the chance that without them having gone there, they would know to put the wee little man up a sycamore tree? They don't have access. This is the picture. You can pull it up right now if you want. You can go to the Wikipedia page for the sycamore tree. This is the distribution map off the Wikipedia page. They didn't have Wikipedia. They wouldn't have known that there were sycamore trees in Jericho. Why is Zacchaeus up a sycamore tree? Why is it described that way? Because in real life, in history, he was up a sycamore tree. One last one and we'll be done. The feeding of the 5,000. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 39, we find out that the feeding of the 5,000 happened and people were sitting on green grass. John confirms that there was much grass. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, we're told that the people were coming and going, but we're not told why the people were coming and going until we get to John chapter 6 and verse 4, where we're told that this miracle happened when it was Passover time. That's why the people were traveling. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus asked Philip where to buy bread, but he doesn't tell us why he asked Philip where to buy bread. And then in John 7 and 8, Philip and Andrew answered, Why does Andrew jump in and answer along with Philip? John doesn't tell us why, but we find out in Luke that the feeding happened near Bethsaida. And we find out in John chapter 1 and verse 44 that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. So why does Jesus turn to Philip and say, hey, where should we buy bread? Because he was from Bethsaida. Why does Andrew jump in? Because he he knew where to buy bread. So he's going to jump in with Philip to help out. You know, it's like talking to one of our IBC students from Tijuana. You're going down there to preach. Hey, where should I go to get tacos in Tijuana? The other student from Tijuana is going to jump in and help you make that choice too. That's what's going on here. And then we're told that the barley, the the loaves that the boy had were barley loaves. Well, that makes it clear. That makes sense because this is at the time of the Passover It's during the spring. The barley harvest was the first harvest. That makes sense. Well, here's the question. Would there be a lot of green grass in Bethsaida in the spring? Poor Dr. Shoemate doesn't have access to the internet for his research. Good thing I do, okay? So I can pull up a precipitation chart for a city that is right near Bethsaida, the city of Tiberias. And that's where the time of year where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happened. It happened in April. We know that because it was the time of the Passover and the barley harvest. And so the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happens after the six months 
of the most rainfall in that region, would there have been a lot of green grass? Yes. Here's my point. In the names, the plants, and the precipitation, the gospel writers get it exactly right. And it's not like John said, you give some details, and Mark, you give some more, and then Luke, you throw in a couple. They were just writing what they had seen and what they had heard as it had happened, and it turns out that this is exactly accurate And that would be virtually impossible for someone other than an eyewitness to know. And let me just conclude with this thought. If the gospel writers got the details exactly right, the hard bits, like people's names, isn't that the hard part to get right? Why would we think that it gets the big stuff wrong? There are different portraits of Jesus across the four Gospels. But all of these Gospels end the exact same way. Jesus buried, but three days later coming back to life again. The Bible gets that right too. Those are eyewitness accounts. And there is every good reason to believe that the canonical Gospels are exactly what they purport to be. Which is eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our King, who is coming again. I would like us to end. If you would join me, we're going to stand together. I'll ask Pastor Dave to join me. We're going to sing a course to end our time together. We're going to use this for this uh, series, and the course is, I Run to Christ. Today's lesson was very factual. It gave us details But I don't want us to forget that this whole series in the end is for us to know who Jesus Christ is and to be impressed with him. So would you join me in standing as we close this evening as we sing this course, I Run to Christ.